Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were good buds, uh, at least initially. Back in the days of the Continental Congress, they served 1776 side by side as leaders. Uh, Later on in George Washington's first administration, they both worked together. Uh, Over the years, they exchanged uh, scores of letters to one another. They had a wonderful friendship. If you like reading American history, Joseph Ellis, in his book Founding Brothers, devotes an entire chapter to the, the, the relationship between Jefferson and Adams, which he calls the friendship, the friendship. But unfortunately, the friendship began to unravel as George Washington's administration wound to a close because both Jefferson and Adams had their eye on the same prize. They both wanted to be president. And so for the next eight years, they competed with each other. Uh, Adams won the first election. Jefferson won the next election. But their political rivalry put the kibosh on their friendship. They uh, started accusing each other. Jefferson accused Adam, Adams of betraying the revolution. Adams said that uh, Jefferson was slandering him in secret. And it just went downhill from there. They stopped communicating with each other over a period of eight years. They rarely, if ever, wrote uh, a letter to one another. And then Adams began to mend the fences. Adams figured it was time to restore this, repair this friendship, and so he started writing Jefferson again. In fact, in the next 14 years, he wrote Thomas Jefferson 158 letters. 158, and that's not even counting the emails, the text messages, whatever. And so the friendship began to blossom once again. And as kind of a sign of how close these guys ended up being, they actually died within five hours of each other. On the same day... uh, Jefferson down in Virginia, Adams up in New England. It gets even better. It was the 4th of July that they both passed away on. And it gets even better than that. It was the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence back in 1776. That's the day both these guys died on. That's an incredible friendship. Well, today we're going to talk about how to wreck a good friendship. Okay, so if you brought a Bible with you, uh, wave it at me once, would you? Just your tablet or your phone or your Bible, only if you're using your phone for a Bible. Okay, and let's turn to James chapter 4. We're in the eighth installment of a 12-part series, Faith That Makes a Difference. The last couple of of sermons that have come out of James have had to do with relationships. A couple of weeks ago, Sue was preaching on Mother's Day about the power of words. James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Our words can build people up. Our words can tear people down. Uh, Last week, the topic was RQ, relational quotient. How much wisdom do you have with regard to relationships, building relationships? That was James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Today we're moving into James chapter 4, but James is still beating the drum for healthy relationships. Only this time around he's going to come at the topic from a negative angle, which is why I'm calling it how to wreck a friendship. How to wreck a friendship. There are actually four friendships described in today's passage and. I'll help you get a handle on wrecking every one of them, okay? But the good news is we're then going to learn how to restore each of these friendships. Uh, Actually, one of them we're not going to restore because it's not worth putting back together, and you'll see why when we get to it. But if you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, I encourage you to do that. Get out James 4 and your outline. Here's number one, how to wreck a friendship with others. How to wreck a friendship with others. And the way you do it is insist on getting what you want. Insist on getting what you want. Let me read the opening verses to James 4. James writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? 
Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire to have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Stop right there. You know, once again, James uses questions. He begins the passage with a couple of questions. I told you last week, this is a, this is a, a common teaching tool of James. He's an in-your-face kind of guy. He's not afraid to tell you what he thinks you need to hear. However, he's very diplomatic. He's winsome. He'll, he'll often use questions to draw you into the discussion. That's what he does here. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Why can't you get along with other people? James is asking. Why are you wrecking friendships? Please note, if you would, that the the words fights and quarrels, those two nouns in verse 1, are in the plural. So what James is suggesting here is this is not a rare occurrence in your life when you run into conflict. This is something that's happening far too frequently. So what's behind it? He's he's inviting you. Do a little self-diagnosis here. And then he hints at what the problem may be with his second question. He asks a question, but he's already pointing you in the direction of the answer. He says, I know what the problem is. Isn't it your desires that are battling within you, the things you want? And just in case we'd miss it, look at, look at the verbs he uses in verse 2. He says, you desire, you covet, you want. If you've got your own Bible, just circle those. You desire, you covet, you want. Isn't that the reason behind conflict in your relationships? Here's a little experiment to try sometime. Okay, the next time you're honked off at somebody, ask yourself the question, is there something I want that this person is keeping me from getting? Okay, I just don't mean monetary things. It could could be anything. It could be respect, you know, whatever. Is there something I want that this person is keeping me from getting? James would say, I'll bet you that nine out of ten... Ten times, that's the root cause of your relational conflicts. It's your constant insistence on getting what you want. You know, you want a new car. Your wife says, it isn't in the family budget. You want to go mini-golfing with your friends, but they, they want to go see the new Star Trek movie. You, you want that open position at work, but your boss says a coworker is better suited for the job. You want to change lanes in traffic, but the driver next to you doesn't want to let you in. You want to come in at 1 a.m. and your parents say curfew is midnight. You see where I'm going with this? Whatever the relational conflict, ask yourself the question, is there something I want that this other person is keeping me from getting? Because that's probably the root of your relational problem. And that root wrecks friendship. In fact, James puts it a little stronger in this passage. He says that our insistence on getting what what we want not only leads to fights and quarrels. Please note that he uses those expressions twice, once in verse 1, another time in verse 2, fights and quarrels. But he goes on to say, first line of verse 2, it can even lead to killing other people. Look at that. You desire but do not have, so you kill. Now, you think James means that literally? He's writing to Christ followers, and he's a little bit concerned that they might want something so badly they'd murder someone else to get it? You know, I don't think so. Most Bible scholars feel he's writing uh, using hyperbole, exaggeration to make his point. 
He's making the same point that his half-brother Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was talking about what murder is. Remember that? Jesus said, when you get really, really angry with someone, so much so that you're willing to call them a fool or a jerk or an idiot or whatever, he says, you've just murdered them in your heart. That's what James is talking about here. You want something, somebody gets in your way, and so you become so angry, you're willing to murder that person in your heart. How many of you know that murdering people in your heart is a way to wreck a friendship? Be careful of insisting of getting what you want because it wrecks relationships. Okay, what should you do with your unmet desires? So you want stuff, you've, you've got legitimate desires, what do you do with them? James has a two-part answer to that question in the opening verses of James 4. The first First part can be found in the closing line of verse 2. Look at that. He says, you do not have because you what? Say it out loud. Do not ask God. You do not have because you do not ask God. In other words, if you really want something and somebody is standing in the way of you getting it, rather than powering over that person, which is just going to wreck the friendship, why don't you try going to God with that desire, that want? Why, Why don't you pray about it? That's a novel idea. Some of you are saying, well, yeah, I've tried that. I wanted something. I couldn't get what I wanted. I asked God for it. I still didn't get it. Okay, then James would say, I've got part two to my answer to you. Part two to the answer is this. Sometimes, you know, consider the fact that sometimes God is not going to give you what you want. So you need to let it go. Look at verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Sometimes God says, you know, there's just a little too much self-centeredness in this request. So my answer is no. And it might be even for something good. We're not just talking about God give me patio furniture. It might be for the healing of a loved one where God says, no, I've got other plans. And besides, there's... There's a little too much selfishness in this request right now. Let it go. Now, let's let's put what we've learned from James into practice here. Can you bring to mind right now a situation in which you're having a conflict with somebody else and the conflict is, is due to the fact that you want something and they're keeping you from getting it? Can anything come to mind? Let me make something up for my own life, okay? Uh, let's say... I want to take Sue on a one-week getaway. And so I'm kind of pumped about this. I go to the travel agent. I come home with brochures. I can hardly wait to sit her down, break the good news to her. And so we sit at the kitchen table, and I push the brochures across, and I say, look at this. And she says, yeah, I'm sorry, but no. What do you mean, no? Well, we don't have the money for it to begin with. And if we could afford to do something like this, I'd rather spend the money on a new sofa for the living room. Oh. Now, what are my choices? Well, I can insist on getting what I want. No, we're going on. We need this trip. We need the R&R. We're going. Well, that's going to work out great, right? I really want to be with my wife on one of those trips. (laughs) Or I could do just the opposite. I could throw up my hands and say, and that's the trouble with our marriage. You never want to do anything with me. Or I could step back, punt, pray about it. 
I could say, God, I really feel like Sue and I need some R&R. And I'm just, you know, it's not apparent that we have the money for it, but you can provide if you think this is something we need. Would you do this? Now, God may do it for me in, in a variety of ways. God, God may open an outside speaking gig so I could bring in some money and I could say to Sue, look, God's given us the, the money to do this trip. Or, uh, you know, or someone could come up to me and say, hey, Jim, my wife and I, we've got a condo down on Hilton Head if you ever want to use it for a week. By the way, I don't know anybody in our church who has a condo on Hilton Head, so I'm not, I'm not trolling here. Like, <laughs> although if it works and you do have a condo on Hilton Head... You, uh, or, I, you know, maybe God will change Sue's heart and mind on the, on the matter. Maybe Sue will come to me and say, you know, the more I think about it, we could do without a stupid new sofa in the living room. What we need to do is kayak for a week in Colorado. Yeah. She comes to her senses. Yeah, what? Any number of things God could do. Or God could say no. This time around, Jim, I'm not interested in giving you a, a positive answer to your prayer. And so you need to let it go. You know, maybe that means I need to go sofa shopping with Sue. Or maybe that means I need to give up my R&R trip and replace it with a go team trip. Sue and I need to raise some support and go to Sierra Leone with the next go team trip and serve side by side. Maybe ultimately that'll be more refreshing than lying on a beach side by side for a week. Eric Hansen, our international impact director, loves when I throw those suggestions into the sermons. Yeah, go on a go team trip. You see how this works? What wrecks a friendship with others is when we insist on getting our own way, getting what we want. And God says, instead of doing that, why don't you try praying about it? And if I don't give, give you what you want when you pray about it, consider letting it go. You get it? Good. Number two, how to wreck a friendship with God. How to wreck a friendship with God. And the way you do this is you pursue other first loves. You pursue other first loves. Pick it up where we left off, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do you think that Scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? Ah, but he gives us more grace. And that's why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now, James takes off his gloves at the beginning of verse 4. It's no more Mr. Nice Guy asking self-diagnostic questions. Now James lets his readers have it. You adulterous people. Uh, Interestingly, in the original Greek text uh, of this verse, James does not use the uh, gender-neutral expression, adulterous people. He uses a feminine expression. He says, you adulteresses. Now, why would he do that? Or, or why would the English translators come along and say, oh, let's not use the feminine, let's change it to gender neutral? I, I think the reason that the contemporary English translations do that is they're thinking to themselves, let's not be discriminatory here. I mean, women are not the only ones guilty of adultery. Guys do adultery as well. So let's change it from adulteresses to adulterous people. But in doing so, I think our translators have missed a very important point that James is very subtly making here. See, throughout the Bible, Scripture refers to the collective group of believers as God's wife, God's bride. 
So God, so to speak, is our husband. And when you're unfaithful to God, when you pursue other first loves instead of God, what does that make you? God's the husband, makes you the adulteress or adulteresses. That's what James is saying here in the opening part of verse 4. He's not accusing his, his readers of cheating on their spouses, in which case he'd include everybody by saying, you adulterous people. He's accusing them of cheating on who? God. You're cheating on God, he's saying. So who were they cheating with? Who were they cheating with? Take a look at the text again. Call it out if you see it. Okay. Who? The world. Let me reread the opening line of verse 4 to you. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? James' readers were carrying on an affair with the world. You say, well, that's a little strong, isn't it? An affair? James doesn't use the expression an affair. He calls it friendship. Friendship's an innocent word. Well, actually not in this context. The word that James chooses in the Greek is the word philia, which means, yes, a friendship, but on other occasions can mean a very affectionate relationship. It's sometimes used to refer to kissing and hugging. So this is a kissy-face-huggy-poo sort of relationship going on. I mean, he's already called them adulteresses, so you know that he's talking about cheating on God. So this friendship cannot be a proper relationship. It's got to be inappropriate. This is an affair, an illicit affair. You say, wait a second, aren't we supposed to love the world? I mean, the most familiar verse in all of Scripture has got to be John 3.16 that says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Shouldn't we love the world? Ah, but the Bible uses the expression the world in two different ways. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word the world or the expression the world, what's meant is all the people on the planet. Okay, God so loved the world. The world, all the people. But sometimes when Scripture uses the expression the world, it's a reference to all the the morals, all the values, all the priorities that stand opposed to God. The world. And that's what James is talking about here. The world. Sometimes those values, those priorities, they look innocent enough on the surface. They, They may even be good things. But when they become the first loves of our lives, when they get our best time, when they get our best energy, when they get our best attention, our best resources, leaving God whatever's left, then they become our secret lovers. Or in many cases, because everybody knows what our first love is, they're not so secret lovers. Now, according to this definition, friends, you could be cheating on God with just about anything. I mean, you could be cheating on God with, with a well-kept lawn. Now, the reason that came to my mind this week is I was putting my notes together is I was reading my news magazine and came across an article on lawns entitled Blades of Glory. Yeah. L- listen to the subtitle. What's behind America's obsession with velvety green weed-free lawns? Now, did, did you catch that, that phrase, America's obsession? The writer of the article is suggesting you may be having a love affair with your lawn. Now, here's the history of lawns. I love this, okay? Giving you all this information 
that's totally worthless to you, but you'll find some way to work it into a conversation this week. Lawns got going back in the 17th and 18th centuries in Europe among the nobility. It was Louis XIV who installed lawns at the the palace gardens at Versailles. He he called them a green carpet. So all the nobility was doing it, but it didn't come to the United States until after the Second World War. Guys were returning from war, and they were moving their families out of the city into what they were calling suburbs. And you'd buy a little house and you'd have a patch of land in front of your house and behind your house. What are you going to do with it? Well, plant some grass seed, grow a lawn. It became a sign of prosperity, a sign that you were a person of leisure. Yeah, right. Eighty percent of the houses today in our country have lawns. And, and scientific research has proven that when you mow your lawn, a chemical is, is given off into the air that creates a sense of well-being. How about that? It can even prevent mental decline in old age. I'm not making this up. It was in the news magazine, so it's got to be true. Okay? I'm I'm going home to snort some lawn. You know? I didn't say smoke some grass, okay? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's great. Lawns are great. Oh, but then you think all the sacrifices we make for the sake of lawns, all the fertilizing, all the mowing, all the weed whacking, all the trimming, all the watering we do. It's endless. Last year, we spread 90 million pounds of fertilizer on our lawns. Some of you were responsible for a million of it yourself, right? 78 million pounds of pesticides applied to our lawns to get all those grubs and nasty weeds and whatever out. A $40 billion a year business, lawn care, $40 billion a year. That's what Americans spend on it. We spent more water on our lawns than farmers did to grow any crop out there, more than corn, more than wheat, more than any agricultural crop More than was spent to irrigate those crops, we spent watering our lawns. So is it possible that a Christ follower could devote more time, energy, and resources to a lawn than to God? More time mowing than reading their Bible? More energy fertilizing than serving in some ministry? More money on landscaping and watering than what's put into the offering bag in order to advance Christ's kingdom? Is that possible? What do you think? But, but my intent is not to pick on lawn lovers today. You know, I want to warn all of us that making a first love out of anything other than God wrecks our friendship with Him. Let me say it again. Making a first love out of anything other than God wrecks our friendship with with him. Your lover, your illicit lover may be your job. Your lover may be your kids' activities. I mean, when their activities goes on your calendar, nothing gets in the way. Church-related stuff, God-related stuff, no, it's kid stuff. Your lover may be watching sports. So much time is spent there, the time that could be spent in a pursuit of God is all eaten up. Is God jealous of the attention that some of these things are getting from you? You say, jealous. God doesn't get jealous. God's above jealous. Really? Look at the middle of verse 5 that I read a moment ago. What does it say? God jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us. 
God wants us. God wants our hearts. God wants our spirits. You, you think it doesn't bother God that we get more excited about a baseball game or a new car than we do about lifting our hands in worship at a weekend service or going on a go team trip to proclaim the gospel? He's a jealous God. He's jealous. There are a couple of reasons for God's jealousy. One of those reasons is that God knows himself to be a great and awesome God who deserves first place in our lives. But the second reason God's jealous is for our sake. God looks at us and he knows. He knows that we will never fill that hole in our heart if we give our time, our attention, our best efforts to to, to things of this world. He knows that he alone can fill that hole. And so it breaks his heart when he sees us pursuing other things relentlessly, cutting into the time and attention, resources that we could devote to him. So you want to wreck a friendship with God? Pursue other first loves. You want to renew a friendship with God? Throttle back on that stuff. Identify. Identify what's the potential rival to God in your life and say, you know, I need, I need to cut back on this. And I need to take the time and the energy and the resources that I save, and I need to, to devote it to a pursuit of God. Number three, how to wreck a friendship with the devil. The way you do this is practice sincere repentance. Now, please understand as we begin this third point that wrecking a friendship with the devil is a good thing, okay? This is the one relationship I hinted at in my introduction that we want to leave trashed in our lives. We want to trash it and leave it trashed. So how do we do that? Pick it up at verse 7 where we left off. James writes, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, in the four short verses I just read to you, James crams in no less than ten imperatives. Ten commands in four verses. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and on and on he goes. He's calling for some immediate, decisive, definitive action. But before we take a closer look at what this action entails, I want you to note how James refers to his readers in these verses. He uses two words to describe his readers. They're both in verse 8. If, if you can find them, call them out to me. What's the first one? Verse 8. Sinners. You were a bit unsure. What's the second one? Double-minded. Now, let me remind you, James is not writing to unbelievers here. He's writing to people who profess to be Christ followers. He's saying, sinners, double-minded. See, James knows that on any given day, all of us qualify as sinners and double-minded, right? Sinners. We all think, say, do things every day, displeasing to God, dishonoring, disobedient to him, double-minded. Oh, my goodness. We all know there's one part of us that would love to follow Christ, and there's another part of us that's constantly inclined to following the devil. So, so what do we do with this sinfulness? What do we do with this double-mindedness? Why, this is why James gives us ten imperatives that tell us what to do. In fact, if, if you've got your own Bible in front of you, verses 7 to 10, circle these ten verbs. Submit, resist, come near, wash, purify, grieve, mourn, wail, change, humble. Humble. 
Now, we don't have the time to tease out what is meant by every one of these ten commands, so let me sum them up in, in one phrase. Practice sincere repentance. Repentance means to do a 180-degree turnaround. So James is saying, you find yourself in the course of a day moving in Satan's direction. Stop. Confess your wrongdoing to God. Do an about-face and start heading in God's direction. That's what repentance is. Let me give you an example, okay? You're at work. You're on your computer. You got more time on your hands than you know what to do with. And so you find yourself drifting to a website that you, you shouldn't be at. What do you do? You stop, you confess your wrongdoing to God, you do an about face, and you start heading in God's direction. That's repentance. You're going Satan's direction, you turn around and go God's direction. Now, five minutes later, after you've been doing this on your computer, a coworker stops at your cubicle, and you start talking about the boss, and you find yourself bad-mouthing the boss. What should you do? You stop. You confess your wrongdoing to God after your coworker is left. You do an about face and you start heading in God's direction. Later that day, lunch comes. You're hungry. You leave your office building, go down the block to your favorite restaurant. You're eating by yourself. But when you come back to your desk, you fill out an expense report. You're going to expense it, even though it wasn't a business expense. What do you do? You stop. You confess your wrongdoing to God. You do an about face. You head in God's direction. You're driving home from work. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. You start screaming your head off. And then you stop. What? Confess. Do an about face. And you head in God's direction. You say, how many times a day do I need to do this? (laughs) As many times a day as you find yourself heading in Satan's direction. This is how you wreck your friendship with him. You keep stopping what you're doing, confessing it as sin, doing an about face and beginning, uh, begin to follow God. By the way, uh, one of the things I try to do regularly every day is to go more in depth. See, I don't always catch everything on the fly that I should catch. But every morning when I sit down in my favorite chair with a cup of tea in my Bible, I begin by saying, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm going to take just a second here and ask you to put your finger on anything in my life from the previous 24 hours, any conversation, anything that went on in a meeting I was part of, my actions, my attitudes, whatever, that was displeasing to you. Bring it to my mind and I'll repent of it. I'll stop it. I'll confess it as wrongdoing. I'll head in God's direction. That's what James is talking about here. We do it as often as we need to do it. Not only that, we set aside a time every day to do it in a little greater depth. Practice sincere repentance. I I do, as a footnote, want to park on that word sincere for just a moment, though. Okay, what what do I mean by sincere repentance? Well, when you confess it as sin to God, the question is, are you truly sorry Or do you just want to get back on good terms with God so he's blessing your life again? But you have every intention to return to that sin as as soon as possible. How would you know that you're truly sorry? Look at verse 9. Four out of the ten commands that tell us what to do with our wrongdoing can be found in verse 10. And they're all commands that tell us we ought to be sad when we confess our sins to God. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words... 
don't be flippant when you confess your sins to God. Remember what it cost God to provide you with forgiveness. His son, Jesus Christ, had to die on a cross to pay for your sins. And so you should be genuinely regretful for these sins. Not just regretting that you got caught. Not just regretting that when you do something stupid and sinful, it makes your life miserable and there are consequences to pay. But you regret the fact that you've offended a God who's been so gracious and kind and generous with you through Christ. Let me give you an example of this. Okay, Peter. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, the night before he went to the cross, he was eating with his 12 closest followers, his disciples. And he figured he'd better give them a a warning about what's coming down the pike. And he said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be arrested, be put to death. And you guys, you're you're all going to cut and run. You're going to bail on me. Remember Peter's response? Not me, Lord. You know, looked around the table, even if all these other bozos, yeah, that's living translation there. You, you know, the, these other guys, they do it. I will be with you through thick and thin to the bitter end. Look to your side. Peter's going to be there. You know, was Jesus impressed? <laughs> now he looked at Peter. He said, Peter, really? You know, before the night's out, before a rooster crows a couple of times, you're going to disown me three times. Never, never, never going to happen. But that's exactly what happened. Peter chickened out. Peter denied knowing Jesus. The third time he denied knowing Jesus, to to punctuate his denial, he swore a little bit, throwing a bit of profanity, let people know, I've got nothing to do with this Jesus. And the rooster crowed for the second time. Remember Peter's response. Matthew 26, verse 75. Peter went out. What did he do? He wept bitterly. And evidently these tears were the sign of genuine repentance. He was really sorry he let down his best friend, his Savior, the Lord Jesus. And that sorrow, that sorrowful repentance led to a restored relationship with Christ. And it wrecked his friendship with the devil. You want to wreck a friendship with the devil and leave it wrecked? Practice sincere repentance. Fourth and finally, how to wreck a friendship with fellow believers. The way you do that is display a judgmental spirit. Display a judgmental spirit. Pick it up at verses 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, he's talking now to Christ followers about a relationship with each other. Do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, I'm always telling you to look for repeating words or ideas in a text, right? So I've just read to you two two verses, 11 and 12. What word in various forms pops up again and again and again in these two verses? What is it? Call it out. Judge. Right. James tells us that we're not to judge other people, especially our brothers and sisters in the faith. Now, James is sounding again here a lot like his half-brother Jesus, who in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 2, Jesus said, Don't judge or you too will be judged. Now, I found in our contemporary culture, that's like the most popular verse out there these days, right? Don't judge. Yeah, it usually goes down like this. Person A 
dares to point out that person B's behavior is wrong and person B's supporters gather around him and begin to chant at person A, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. Is that that what Jesus meant in Matthew 7 verse 2? Is calling another person's behavior wrong? Is Is that always off limits? Because if it is, then Jesus himself broke his own rule in the Sermon on the Mount. See, Matthew 7 verse 2 says, do not judge. But you know what Jesus said before he said that in the Sermon on the Mount? He said that the guy who angrily calls another a fool is wrong. He said a guy who looks lustfully at a woman is wrong. He said a guy who divorces his wife is wrong. A guy who retaliates against someone who's hurt him is wrong. A guy who spends all his money on earthly stuff is wrong. A guy who worries instead of trusting God is wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You get the idea. So evidently calling somebody else's behavior wrong does not necessarily break the do not judge rule. Or Jesus would have broken his own rule. Listen now, evidently there's a difference between judging a person discerningly because you're genuinely concerned that they've left God's path. There's a difference between that and judging a person judgmentally because you're highly opinionated and you're ticked off and you want to put others in their place. Judging discerningly is a good thing to do. Judging judgmentally is not. And James says, verse 11, look at this, that when we judge others judgmentally, we're speaking against the law. We're sitting in judgment on God's law. You see that? What law does James have in mind here? If you've been with us through the study of James' epistles, uh, epistle, you may know the answer to this question because he's identified this law a couple of times already. In chapter 2, verse 8, he refers to it as the royal law. What's the royal law, the most important one that he cites, especially with regard to relationships? What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the royal law that James says, don't sit in judgment on this law. So when I'm tempted to speak up against someone's behavior and to call it wrong, I need to ask myself the question, what is my motivation? Is it love? Am I genuinely concerned for this person that that they're hurting themselves, maybe hurting other people, hurting their relationship with God? If my motivation is love, if I'm judging discerningly, then I should speak up. If my motivation is not love, if I'm judging judgingly, then I should keep my opinions to myself. Otherwise, I'll be wrecking friendship after friendship after friendship, especially with other believers. Now, let me wrap things up today with a quick illustration about a a guy who made a great judgment call a few weeks ago. This story was all over the news. The minute I start to tell it, Uh, No doubt you you saw it on the news, you read it in a news magazine. As I tell you the story, uh, I'm going to ask for the worship bands on all four campuses to come back on stage because when I'm done, before we close, they're going to sing a song that underscores the truth of what we've learned in James' epistle today. And as they sing that song, we're going to collect our gifts, our offerings, which is one of the ways we show God that he's first place in our hearts. This is one of the ways we restore that friendship with God. Make him number one by the gifts that we bring. But here's the story I want to refer to. Chris Broussard 
Yeah, yeah. You heard of Chris at all? He is a, a basketball announcer for ESPN. Now, three weeks ago, there was, was big news in the NBA. It had nothing to do with basketball. That's my hint. You remember what story I'm talking about? Jason Collins became the first male pro athlete in a major sport to announce that he's gay. And when he came out, I mean, it was celebrated around the country. He heard from everybody from uh, Michelle Obama to former President Clinton. He heard from the commissioner of the NBA. He heard from Kobe Bryant, from other ball players, saying, way to go, dude. You know, that was courage to say something like that. that. Thank you for your leadership on this issue. Everybody was saying this with one notable dissenting voice. Chris Broussard, sports caster, sports reporter for ESPN. They put him on a panel with some other ESPN guys, and they asked the question, so what do you think of Jason's coming out? And when it got to be his turn, you know, Chris identified himself as a Christ follower. And he said, you know, I just got to say, the, the Bible calls homosexual behavior sin. And then he expanded on what he meant. He said this. He said, if you're openly living in unrepentance and whatever it may be, you know, not just homosexuality, but adultery, fornication, premarital sex, whatever the sin is, I think that's walking in open rebellion to God and to Jesus Christ. And you could hear a collective sucking of air around the country. Can't believe he said that. People were jumping on the bandwagon to nail Chris. Here's the interesting thing. Go watch YouTube. He was very respectful. He didn't say it harshly. In fact, it came out when people started going after Chris, his friends started defending him and said, do you know that one of Chris's good, good friends at ESPN is an openly gay fellow sports, sports writer and that the two of them have played basketball together and go out to lunch together and have these long discussions and respect each other's point of view? Oh. See, evidently, if you judge discerningly, you can maintain friendships. Now, not always, but often. You judge judgingly, judgmentally, and you'll wreck friendships. So let's quickly review what we've learned today. You know, how do you wreck a friendship with others, people in general? Just insist on getting what you want throughout the course of your day. You know, my way or the highway. Now, the alternative to this is tell God what you want. Trust Him to give it to you. And if He doesn't, let it go. Okay, second, how do you wreck a friendship with God? Well, you pursue other first loves. And I, I want to ask you to consider today what, what that first love might be for you. Okay, what is the rival to God's first place in your heart? You know what it is. If you don't, you came with someone you know, just ask them. They'll tell you, okay? Throttle back on that. Give your full devotion to God. Number three, how do you wreck a friendship with the devil? You practice sincere repentance. You know, some of you are believers. You're followers of Jesus. But it's been a long time since you've confessed sin in your life. And you just need some time to do that today. You need time to get a clean slate from God. Some of you have never done this. You've never put your hope and trust in Jesus as Savior and King. And this needs to be the day when you say, God, you, you, you haven't heard me say this before. But I want to say sorry for a lot of junk in my life. 
and tell him what you're sorry for and ask Christ to forgive you based upon what he did on the cross for you. If you want some help doing this, you want somebody to pray with you, our welcome team can serve you at any of our four campuses in that regard as well. And then lastly, you want to wreck a a friendship with fellow believers, display a judgmental spirit. The alternative to this is to be discerning in your judgment of others. 